1: Welcome to Andy Staples on three. And thank you, Jerry, in the chat. Favorite part of my morning commute? Well, we appreciate that. Glad that we can be along for the ride with you guys in the mornings. I'm liking the format. I am becoming a morning person, which is good because as I got to thinking about what was going on with college football playoff, the changes that were being made, not necessarily what's going to happen the next two seasons, but what, what they're talking about for the next whatever after that, I started to get a little cranky. And so if I were not a morning person now, I'd probably have some really nasty things to say, but I am a morning person now. So I'm looking on the bright side. I'm thinking, thinking more globally. And I think that, I think that's probably good. Andrew in the chat just wants to remind everybody that Oregon will win the Natty in 2024. Well, Andrew, now we know how Oregon's path to said natty might work. Because the college football playoff, the commissioners who run it, approved a new model that will take effect for this season and next season. What happens after that is not promised. But for this season and next season, there will be five automatic bids, seven at-large bids. And I realize now... After watching social media on Tuesday, after this approval got made, we got to do some CFP FAQs because I think there's some people who are still confused. And I forget that you know most of us on you know, who who follow this show are deep in the weeds of this stuff, and so they've known about this for two years. They've known how it's going to work. They understand. Okay, the Pac-12 dissolved. That's why they took away one automatic bid, but. That's not the case for everybody. So we got to talk about that. And if you got questions in the chat, and I see Jamie Myers just threw up a a question in the chat, then ask away. So let's, let's take Jamie's question first, and then we'll see what we can do with that. So Jamie says, what happens when an unranked NC State upsets Clemson in the ACC championship? Does an unranked team get a bid? If so, that's crazy. Well, here's the thing. The odds of an unranked team being number two in the the ACC, because remember, there are no divisions. And the question you asked, NC State and Clemson, like there's no way that would have happened in the old divisional system because they were in the same division. But there's probably no way that the second-place team in the ACC isn't ranked. So that's probably not a question. If Clemson is the best team in the ACC and they lost to NC State, NC State is probably probably one of the best 12 teams. But what you're asking is, do they get an automatic bid? Yes, they do. They get an automatic bid as long as they're one of the five highest ranked conference champs. Now, if under a weird situation, in this hypothetical, NC State was somehow like the number 25 team in the country when the CFP did its final ranking, then they probably wouldn't get an automatic bid because... The champions of the American and the Sun Belt or the, the American and the Mountain West might get those instead. But for practical purposes, realistically, that NC State team would be ranked fairly high being the second best team in the ACC, beating Clemson if we're assuming Clemson is the best team in the ACC. Now, would they be ranked high enough to justify being the number four team in the playoff, the number four-seeded team in the playoff? That's another question, but that's probably what they'd be. So let's, let's just break this down. We'll break it down generally, and then if you've got specific questions, then we will talk them. So generally, here's how it'll work. And again, this is for the next two seasons. What happens after that, they're going to start talking about today and who knows where they go from there. But for the next two seasons, it's supposed to go like this. So you have five automatic bids, seven at-large bids. The reason they're doing this, they originally were going to do six automatic bids and six at-larges, the Pac-12 dissolved. And I know there's there's still the two-pack out there, but it was impractical to have that sixth automatic bid. So they're, they're going to move to five. The top four seeds must be conference champs. So why did they do this? The reason they did this is to add stakes to their conference championship games because they want their conference championship games to remain valuable television properties. That's why they're doing this. That's why the conference champs get these high seeds. So... The SEC championship game, the two teams in the SEC championship game are making the playoff. Like they're in the top 12. We know that. But having a bye versus having to play a first round game is a big difference. Having a bye versus having to go on the road for a first round game. Is an even bigger difference? So that's why they're doing it this way. So let's let's talk about how this will work. Practically speaking, unless... Some league is just incredibly down. And given what we see going into 2024, I don't see it. Your top four will be, in some order, Big 10 champ, SEC champ, ACC champ, Big 12 champ. So in some order, that'll be your top four. And if there's an upset in the conference championship game, yeah, that team gets a buy. They are, that. that is not a them trying to reward deserving teams, that is a them trying to add drama to the conference championship weekend. And it will. It'll definitely add drama. But that's how that works. So I'm sure your next question is, what about Notre Dame? Notre Dame, and I saw this on social media on Tuesday, as if people had not been paying attention for two years, Notre Dame cannot be a top four C. It doesn't play a conference championship game the highest it can be is number five. Now, is anybody at Notre Dame complaining about that? No, they are not. Why? Because Notre Dame AD Jack Swarbrick, he's on his way out, but he, he was involved in the creation of this process. He was one of the four people who created this format. And so this was a horse trade by Jack Swarbrick. He trades Notre Dame never getting a top four seed for as long as this type of format exists, Notre Dame never has to consider entering a conference in football because this format, as long as there are this many at larges, Notre Dame, if they're ten and two, they're in. If they're ten and two and their schedule is even reasonably difficult, they're going to be in. Jamie, another question: So, do automatic bids include the group of five? Also, yes. One, well, one we think. It could be, two, Like, Jamie's earlier hypothetical, is if you said the ACC champ or the Big 12 champ or whoever, if they wound up ranked 25th, but the American champ roundup up ranked 13th and the Sunbelt champ round up ranked 15th, then those two would get in because they're ranked higher. They, they're they not codifying it by saying the, the members of these conferences get the automatic bid. They're just saying highest ranked because they're assuming that the highest ranked will be from the Big 10, the SEC, the ACC, and the Big 12. Ed in the chat, what happens when a 12th ranked Ohio State team gets left out for Coastal Carolina? Well, that Ohio State team knew how the format worked and should have finished 11th. That's what happens. Because you're doing this to keep this a national framework. That's why you have that one automatic bid for the group of five, you want to keep it a national framework. You want those conferences to feel included. You do not want them to sue you. And that's why that happens. So it could be very interesting. Gil in the chat, I can see four teams from both the Big Ten and the SEC getting in. That only leaves four spots with three remaining conference winners and one left. That's true. That's entirely possible. You could have four four SEC teams, four Big Ten teams. We'll, we'll actually talk a little more about that in a second when we talk about what's going to start getting discussed today. Chris in the chat, it's a benefit not to play in the conference championship game and then get a five seed, which is basically a buy. Yes and no. It is a benefit if you know you're going to lose the conference championship game. Winning a conference championship game is way better because... Then you get a buy. Now, you still got to go essentially on the road because it's a neutral site bowl game situation. So I, it, it's, but it's way better than having to play an extra game. And that's, like, again, the Notre Dame thing. Notre Dame, because they will never play in a conference championship game, Swerberg said, fine, we'll play that extra game in the first round. Just let us in and don't make us join a conference. That's where that comes in. And I think I think it's a fair swap. And probably when, when this all got approved, Jack Zorberg's thinking, all right, I have secured Notre Dame's independence for the foreseeable future. I think he's he probably would have been right had all this stuff not changed again, had all this stuff not been going on in the court system where the, the whole sports, you know, the way it's financially arranged is gonna change. But let's move forward. So again, these changes take effect this season. We're only guaranteed to see this format and shoot the way things are going. We're not guaranteed to see it for two years, but right now we're, we're expecting to see this format in 24 and 25. The reason it's just a tweak and not any sort of overhaul or any sort of massive changes is because they're still in the original CFP TV deal the one that was signed back in it was signed in 2013 to start in the 2014 season and last through the 2025 season and so once that ends everything's on the table theoretically the question is how's it going to change what will it look like then and we do not know the answer to that what we know is is that today in Dallas, the commissioners who run the CFP will meet. And there will be proposals. Uh, Our friend Ross Dellinger from Yahoo talked to Kirk Schultz, who's the president of Washington State, one of of the two-pack. And Kirk told Ross that there is a fear that the Big Ten and the SEC are going to come in and say, we want three automatic bids each or four automatic bids each going forward starting in 2026. I don't think that's a wise move if indeed Greg Sankey and, and Tony Petiti, the two commissioners of the, of the SEC and Big Ten respectively, want this to be a national framework. If they just want to run the sport, yes, fine, do that. But they're going to get a lot of resistance to that. But here's the difference. It doesn't have to be unanimous to make a change. And here's where they can apply pressure. If, say, the Sun Belt says, we don't want to do this, then they will say, then we'll have the playoff without you. If the ACC says, we don't want to do this, they will say, we can have the playoff without you. And there would be a playoff, and most people would still watch it. The thing you can't have is a playoff without either the Big Ten or the SEC. You cannot have a college football playoff without either of those leagues. So that's where their power comes from. They don't need anybody else. Everybody else needs them. But I don't think if they want this thing to feel, fair is probably the wrong word. We just saw what happened to Florida State. Fair isn't really a word we should use in this discussion. But if they want this to seem like they're all in the same boat. They're trying to create a fun, compelling you know event to, to choose a national champion where everybody has a chance. Then you don't codify it by saying three Big Ten teams and three SEC teams are getting in. That would not be the right thing. If you just want to take over, which they might, which they can if they want to, then just do it. Like, just do it. Rip the Band-Aid off. Say, we're forming the the Super League, the Premier League, whatever you want to call it. And just do it. We know you're going to do it anyway. So just do it. Stand up in front of the meeting. Say, we, as the advisory group, have decided we're taking over the sport. There's nothing you can do about it. And just do it. Take the teams you want. You know, if the ACC teams figure out they can buy their way out of the league, the ones that want to leave, let them buy their way out. Take the ones you want. And just do it. Stop farting around. Stop coming up with these band aid fixes when we know the whole thing's going to change anyway. Now, part of the reason they can't just do that is because. They don't exactly know how everything's going to be organized in the future because a lot of that depends on the court system, the National Labor Relations Board, all of that. Like, does football break off? Because it needs to. Because it needs to collectively bargain with the players. These are all questions that that cannot be answered today. It may not be able to be answered for a year. So they've got to figure that out. But... I don't think trying to bigfoot everybody else by saying we want 3 or 4 automatic bids. I don't think that helps the cause. I don't if you're trying to create a compelling event everybody feeling like they have a chance creates more drama. We're about to see what I call the best event in American sports. The NCAA tournament. Now, do we know that the Big Ten and the SEC and the ACC are going to get multiple teams in? Yeah. The Big 12 is going to get it. I mean, the Big 12 might get more than half the league in. So you can do that. You can have years where you dominate the, the amount of teams in there but they're not codified in there. There's nothing that says the big 12 gets seven teams in to the NCAA tournament. Now. When we talk to James Fletcher next, we'll, we'll we'll talk about how the big 12 cracked the code on the net ranking and how they figured this out to get more teams in. But that's a basketball discussion. This is a football discussion. And. You're going to have years, if you, di- if you did this system for the next 15 years, which I, I don't think they're going to, but if you did this system for the next 15 years, you would have years where the SEC got four or five in, where the Big Tw- Big Ten was super strong and got four or five in. You would have that with the at-larges. But I can understand because everybody wants to to protect their money. It's probably more like the SEC and the Big Ten are going to throw the automatic bid thing out there so that they can then trade it for a larger share of the money, which is a classic negotiating tactic. You say, here's this thing that we don't really think we're going to get anyway, but we're powerful enough and have enough leverage to make it seem quasi-realistic. But if you just give us this other thing, that we want, that you don't want to give us, we'll take that other thing away. And you don't have to worry about that. So maybe that's what they're doing. Maybe that's how they get a larger share of the money. Because if you're the Big Ten and the SEC, again, they cannot have a college football playoff without you. So if you want more money than the ACC and the Big 12, you can leverage your way into that. They can't have a college football playoff without you. They can have one without the Big 12. They can have one without the ACC. It wouldn't be as fun. It wouldn't be as interesting. But they can do it. But Wednesday, they enter the no bad ideas phase because they start talking about what the next deal looks like. And remember, ESPN and the representatives of the CFP have already agreed in principle on a new TV deal that would extend ESPN's televising of the tournament for another six years. But that has to be approved by the other commissioners. It doesn't have to be unanimous like the changes to this format had to be. So we will see what they decide on. It is subject to change because, again, as we talked about earlier this week, we don't know if those teams that want to get out of the ACC are going to be able to get out, if they can, changes the membership of the conferences. We don't know what the NLRB is going to decide in terms of whether players can unionize. We don't know what the courts are going to decide in terms of the NCAA's rules regarding NIL. All of this stuff can change and change pretty rapidly, which is why it's crazy that they now have this This deadline, they got to get this figured out in the next probably year or so, so that they can have in twenty twenty six a format that they understand how it works and and they're everybody's good with it. Bleed purple and gold. So an East Carolina fan, you can have a CFP with only the Big Ten and the SEC, but viewership in the CFP will take a huge hit. Disagree. It won't take a huge hit. That's their leverage. 75% of the people that would watch it would still watch it. So if they get 75% of the money, it would make sense. Can't ostracize over half the sport and expect more viewers. You don't expect more, but here's the thing that people don't understand. It's not more than half the sport. The SEC and the big 10 have more than half the viewers. They have an outsized chunk of the viewership. Much, much bigger than everybody else. This is like when you see those those news stories that talk about you know one percent of the population controls x percent of the wealth. Well, that percent of the population controls the vast majority of the viewership. So it's you're you're not. Don't think about it like teams. Don't say well they've ostracized. 67 teams, and therefore 67 out of 133, that percentage. So 50% of the fans are not going to be interested now. That's not how that works. There are a lot more Ohio State fans than East Carolina fans. Like there might be more Ohio State fans than entire fan bases of the American Conference. So you have to understand the math of this. There cannot be a playoff without the Big Ten or the SEC. There can with the two of them and the two of them alone. But it wouldn't be nearly as fun. So as they enter the no bad ideas phase, guys, go figure it out. We'll probably have a, a show or two where we throw some ideas at you just in case you need a few extra. But well, right now, we got going to talk about game time. Download that game time app. Use the code Staples for twenty dollars off your first purchase. The NCAA tournament is coming up, and Game Time is perfect for the NCAA tournament. So you don't know until Selection Sunday whether your team's going to Salt Lake City or Charlotte or Pittsburgh or Omaha or any of the other cities where they're hosting NCAA tournament games. So you go to Game Time on Selection Sunday, figure out okay where's my team going, click on that that venue, you see all of the available tickets, you see photos of the arena. Very specific photos. This is where you'd be sitting. This is what you'd see from this seat. You click on all-in pricing, so you know exactly what you'd be paying. A couple more taps, those tickets are yours. So go to Game Time, download that app, use the code Staples for twenty dollars off your first purchase. It's not just sporting events, concerts, comedy shows—you name it. I I was wearing my Willie Nelson T-shirt the other day. And a guy stops me in the gas station. He's going, he's playing like 60 miles from here over the weekend. And he was. I missed it. I didn't even know he was touring. So I looked up Willie Nelson on tour. Heck yeah. Willie is still touring. He's going strong. He's playing in in, in the next few months. He's playing in Missouri. He's playing in Texas. He's playing in Wisconsin. So go to game time. Got the NCAA tournament. Got summer concerts. Now's the time to get those last-minute tickets. Use the code Staples for $20 off your first purchase. All right. Now it is time to talk to a guy who has seen quite a bit. He's seen a lot of the changes in college football and he's riding with them. He's he's figuring them out as he goes too, because his team just entered a new conference last year. He's learning how that works. He's learning how to retain your best players in this new system. Gus Malzon from UCF, former Auburn coach, former great state of Arkansas high school coach. I feel like that needs to be part of the, the, the prominent part of the bio too. As you'll hear in the interview with Gus, that still informs a lot of how he operates and really laid a great foundation for a great career. Because here's the thing, Gus is coming off his first losing season as a head coach. UCF was six and seven. He's really pissed about that. You're going to see that. And I got a feeling that ain't happening again. UCF could be pretty good next year. Let's hear from Gus Malzahn.
0: Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting.
2: Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price Priceline.
1: Here in Orlando with Gus Malzahn, Big 12 head coach. We were just talking before we started about the league, the Big 12 and uh, how how there might be some kind of misconceptions. And, And you were a guy who worked in the SEC for years and years, you come to the Big 12 what, what was your first year through it? Like, what did it, what did it feel like?
2: Yeah, first of all, there's a lot of real teams. And, uh, you know, in the past, there is that misconception that it was a seven-on-seven league. It was anything but, you know, but that. Um, you know, teams line up, they try to bloody your nose. It's a real conference. There's no off weeks. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of parity. You have to play good football to win, whether you're at home or on the road. But uh, I was very impressed going through it the first year.
1: Well, and that's the thing. I've heard you talk in the last few weeks about, You, you did a lot of reflection six and seven was not up to your standard. And I I had not realized, so in high school, as a high school coach and as a college coach, you never had a losing season. No, no. But you think about, you look back on this season, the, the Oklahoma game, the Baylor game, this could have been a different win loss record. How close do you feel you are to being competitive? you know, near the top of the big 12. Yeah.
2: I mean, um, you learn the first year, there's no doubt. And just to be completely honest, we didn't do a great job coaching that anytime you had that many close losses, we lost a couple close home. You just talked about the Oklahoma, you know, you got a chance to seize a moment in a, in a huge win. We weren't able to do that. Uh, but I like where we're at, uh, definitely did some self reflection, never lost. But when you do that, it gives you an opportunity. Okay. Hey, what do we need to do? And we evaluate everything. Uh, um, yeah. and we made some coordinator changes, uh, some staff changes. I really think that's going to help us. Um, you know, we brought in some defensive playmakers, uh, you know, from the portal that I think can help with our young guys that we got coming up. So you know, I like where we're at, but, uh, you know, we're gonna roll our sleeves up and go to work. So you got here and
1: you said you were never giving up play calling again. And then before last year, you said, I want to deal with the CEO stuff. But, but by the middle end of the season, you're, you're into the play calling again. Yeah. How did you recon, you know, how did you figure that when you, when you're doing that evaluation? Okay. I need to get back into this. No doubt,
2: in, you know, in fairness, I think the last year and a half, two years, college football has changed so much. Yeah. And just from a head coach's standpoint, there's so much on the head coach now with the one-time transfer, the portal, the NIL fundraising, everything that goes with it. And so from your common sense standpoint, like man, especially at a place like this, we're a young school. And I got to also be a fundraiser. And so that was the thinking. But by halfway through, you know, as a head coach, I'm always going to do what's best for our team to be successful. And I took back over and I'm going to do it. And the bottom line is that's what I love to do. That's what that's what I like to do. You adjust. And I think every head coach right now is going through some adjustment with the new age of college football.
1: Well, and it's interesting. I'll go with two guys that you've worked with in the past. So Eli Drinkwitz gave it up and seems like he was pretty happy with that, with, with how it worked with Kirby Moore. And then Mike Norvell, Yeah, I can't imagine him ever not calling plays. Like it, he just, it seems like that's kind of what makes him, him as a
2: head coach. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's fair to say, first of all, both those guys are excellent play callers. Yeah. I mean, some of the best in the country and it worked for Eli. There's no doubt. I know he still had a, a good hand on what's going oh, yeah. on, but, uh, you know, that, that league, I mean, being a head coach in that league, that, that's a monster now. Okay. There's a lot more to it than some other leagues. And then, of course, Mike—he's all you could tell as a GA. The dude's brilliant, and uh, you know he's so calm under pressure. And he's one of the best uh, that's doing it, you know, these days.
1: How do, do you ever get a chance to, to sit back and think about the tree? Because we mentioned Mike, Eli, Rhett Lashley, yeah. Cody Burns—who's who's, who's yeah. in the NFL
2: now. Mm-hmm.
1: You've got a pretty good tree going.
2: Yeah, it tells you I'm getting old. Okay, <laughs> but no, I I've been real blessed to be in the right situation a lot right time to coach some big time players and those guys were you know you could all tell they they were they were going to make it i mean uh, you know they were really good with kids they're great communicators they're very smart they're workers they're getter-dunners and so it was really just all of the above but i'm real proud of those guys i mean they're doing extremely well um you know chip Lindsay, yeah you know, we had a top five offense in the country too so you know there's a lot of good things going with our former guys so this team now, you, you mentioned you brought in, uh, you know, quite a few guys from the transfer portal.
1: Mm-hmm. I heard you say something in a press conference a few weeks ago that I found very interesting. You said even before you got here, UCF was always a place that was welcoming to transfers, and it, it seemed like a place where transfers could thrive. How does that work? Is it something that you you try to foster in the locker room to to bring when the new guys come in, or is it something that has just kind of been here
2: i think it's just been here i mean this is a we're a young school um you know i really took over a great foundation i mean not just good players they left me but a good culture and it's just uh you know for guys coming in and there's no jealousy they want to win yeah and they're true team guys and that's really helped us you know with the transfers coming in be successful
1: so kj jefferson obviously the biggest name transferred at I remember when when he said he was coming to UCF. Yeah. I thought, okay, if I could design a quarterback yeah. for Gus Malzahn' office, that would be Cam Newton. But if if we could have one mm. among the normal human beings,
2: yeah, KJ probably it. Yeah, I, I'm really excited about KJ. Uh, you know, I recruited him at a high school, yeah, or but Bo Nix was the same age, yep. and obviously we weren't going to take two quarterbacks. And so, you know, I had my eye on him. Obviously, being from Arkansas and all my friends, a lot of my good friends are huge Arkansas fans, KJ Jefferson fans. So. When he went in the portal, he was our number one guy. And you're exactly right. With what we like to do offensively, it doesn't get any better than his skill set. And I really think that he has the perfect skill set to thrive, you know, in our league and really in our I
1: office. As KJ likes to run. You come up, you know, coming off John Rice Plumlee, who also was a great runner as well. But it, it's interesting because some of those guys that, that are good runners that have good arms just want to say, well, I, I just want to throw the ball. I don't, I don't really... K.J.'s never been shy about yeah. running it too.
2: Yeah. No, there's no doubt. But, I mean, I think he's Arkansas's all-time leading passer. Yeah. There's been great quarterbacks yeah. coming through the University of Arkansas. So that says a lot. But he's willing to run. Like, you know, when we were recruiting, Coach, man, whatever I need to do to help us win, you know, I'm going to do. And so, you know, John Rice, you know, he really developed himself into a passer too. So, you know, but he is a He's a really good fit for what we like to do.
1: And he comes into an offense where the, the skill guys, yeah. you get a lot of old yeah. guys back. R.J. Harvey, mm-hmm. the 1,400 rushing yards is back. Uh, Kobe Hudson, did you, did yeah. you think you were going to get him back?
2: Uh, it, we knew, you know, he had opportunities. There was other people that were coming after him real hard, yeah. not just NFL, but other people. Uh, Xavier Townsend's a guy that, you know, is really electric, and I really feel like he's ready to take that next step. And we've uh, got some other young receivers that, that have a chance to be really good and some good tight ends, too, uh, in a really solid offensive line. So we got the pieces of the puzzle for him to come in and be successful. So you, you were talking about all the stuff that the head coach has to deal with. Now. Retention
1: of the guys that are good on your roster. Yeah. How, how does that process work? I mean, is that an everyday process of just making sure they're happy and, and want to be here? And... Yeah,
2: you know, I think that's where it starts from a head coach's standpoint. Soon as that season's over. The number one thing I felt like I need to do is try to retain our top players. And, you know, a lot of the guys are, are being seeked out. And, then, you know, there's no rules anymore. They're getting recruited. Right. And, and it's re- specific recruiting. So holding on to our guys. And we did a pretty solid job of that. And uh, But that's where it starts. I made a couple in-home visits to our own players. But that's just the new age of college football. And, really, that's where it starts for us.
1: Is that weird, like when you're in home with a guy who's been in your program for three years, how strange is that? You
2: know, I've done some in the past with the guys that are thinking about going to the NFL and all that, but I've never done with a portal, thinking about going to other schools in the portal, but that's just where everybody's at. And I'm sure I'm not the only head coach in in the country doing that. Now I've heard you talk about this before. You were a high school coach for a long
1: time before Mm -hmm. you became, became a college coach. And you've always said that the skills you learn as a high school coach whether it's lying in the field, driving the bus, yeah. dealing with mom, I, how does that translate to to a lot of the stuff you have to deal with now?
2: Yeah, you know, high school is about relationships and it's about adapting. And, and you know, in high school, you're going to get you know your best players. It may look different from year to year, position wise. So you got to adapt. You got to have a system that is is building around the strengths of your best players. That's probably the biggest advantage I have being a former high school coach, not just being a GA and learning one system and you know it like the back of your hand, but they got to fit perfectly in that system. We have an offense that's flexible that if we have a chance to get a great player, we know how to build around his strengths in our system, flexible enough to do that. That's one of the best advantages I think I have being a former high school coach. So I was talking to,
1: this is several years ago, I was doing a story on Mike Norvell and I called your former O-line coach from Springdale High School and he was telling me that you had a situation. And I was thinking about this as I was listening to you talk about NIL and the different challenges, And he goes, "We lost a kid to the rodeo one time. <laughs> so like, kid coming to your you know, coming to your coach, I want to go I'm, I want to go do rodeo instead of play football. That's probably different than anything you deal with at NIL. That, that
2: sure. is different. <laughs> Springdale, they did rodeo. You had to adapt, okay? <laughs> okay. And, you know, that was Don Strube. He was my yep. former offensive line coach. So when I went to Tulsa, you know, I was going to try to take Rhett with me yep. to be the GA. Well, Rep was going to get married. So he stayed in Northwest Arkansas. So I said, hey, Don, who, who do you got? He said, man, Mike Norvell would be a great GA. So that's how that whole thing well, started. And, and so Rhett says there's
1: this meeting at a gas station somewhere yeah. in the middle of Arkansas. Where where basically Rhett is handing off your playbook to Mike Norvell and yep. then telling Mike how to deal with you.
2: That's exactly right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's exactly right. I said, man, Rhett, you got to meet with him. You got to show me exactly how we do it. And so they got together, and Mike hit the ground running. I, that is that is crazy. And
1: okay, so the Eli Drinkwitz story is he was the manager who came along with the, the head coach
2: of an All Star team. Yeah, yeah. So I was the offense coordinator All Star. Team, right, which that was as good as it gets back in the day, and his head coach was a legend, and the head coach got to bring the manager, yeah, and so there was a sophomore linebacker named Eli Drinkwich, and so he was my GA or whatever back then, and so we got to know each other, and when he graduated, hey coach, can I come volunteer for you at Springdale High School? Sure, man. He made a good impression yep. for me, and. So that's how I went down and I went to college. He moved up and he was offensive coordinator. And I think in 2009, we needed a a GA. And so I made an in-home visit (laughs) with him and his wife and talked him into coming to Auburn for $12,000 and to be a GA. And he got a chance to help with Cam Newton. The rest is history.
1: It is unbelievable. But it's funny because Mike tells the story of, you mentioned Don Stribling. Mike shook Don Stribling's hand at a camp once I, like waited around so he could shake his hand and say i'm mike norvell nice to meet you yep. and if he doesn't do that you mm-hmm. never gets recommended to you i don't think that so. doesn't
2: happen i don't think so but mike he's a smart guy yeah and you know that's just the way mike is i mean he always thinks about the little things but that's exactly and you know don said man i just know this guy is going to be a great coach for you he'll be just like rhett and all this yeah and it worked out
1: well and and so this staff you, you've gotten some guys that you've worked with before, uh, Ted Roof's come to be a yeah. defensive coordinator. I, I bumped into him out there. Yeah. I, the first thing I said to him was Antoine Carter, greatest hustle play in the history of football. It was. Uh, for those who don't remember, this is the Iron Bowl in 2010. Auburn's on the way to the national title, except they're about to lose to Alabama. Mark Ingram's about to score a touchdown. And Antoine Carter runs the length of the yeah. field and knocks the ball and
2: out. And I th- we may have been down 24 nothing at the time. It, were, I think we're down 21-0. 20, okay. And it would have
1: yeah. been 28. And you would have lost. It wasn't yeah. looking good. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that was, you know, Ted, we have experience together. We won a national championship together. Yep. We've kept in touch throughout the years, and so it really worked out. We're real blessed to have When it. you
1: bring Tim Harris back, uh, it, it, it's, it seems like it's a group that, that really knows each other pretty well.
2: Yeah, Tim Harris, he's a rising star. Um, he was with us the first two years. I mean, did a super job. He goes to Miami for a year, hired him back as a coordinator. He's a former uh, head that coach. former high school coach. Booker T. Washington, yep. number one team in the country. So we have a lot of former high school coaches that were very, very successful. And Tim, uh, you know, is one of those guys. Oh, I watched him coach at Booker T
1: Central game one year where it was more intense than any SEC game I've ever seen, so.
2: Yeah, he's used to winning and uh, he has a true gift with players. He's very, very smart. He knows what we like to do offensively. And, you know, he's gonna, uh, we'll do it together. I mean, he, he's a right-hand man and I have a lot of confidence in him. So
1: how do you balance, the, you? bring in you know quite a bit of transfer you kind of split the class between transfers and high
2: school how do you decide how how much you want to devote to either one well first of all we're gonna we're committed to build this thing through high school I think we signed 19 and 18 and every year you just gotta after the portal opens up like what are the immediate needs and so we will address immediate needs but I really believe the foundation for us to be able to win a championship starts in high school there's great players around here and when we got here our whole goal was to keep our our top players here recruit everybody they may leave but if they don't like it we're going to be waiting on them come back home and so you're starting to see the plan uh you know really come into place but the bottom line is we want to build this thing with high school players
1: and how much has the move to the big 12 we've known about for a while but now that you've played in it for a year when you're talking to those guys that are in the class of 25 26 does it change how they Consider you look at you.
2: One hundred percent. Everything has changed. It's really helped too that we went through a year, and able to have the home games, and, and there's some real atmospheres yeah. with some real teams coming in, and for those recruits to see it and feel it, they all want to play big time ball. Yeah, this is big time ball now, and that's been a game. Well, Oklahoma changer State
1: comes in like the hottest team in the yeah. country,
2: and you guys have maybe your best game of the year. Yeah, yeah. There's no doubt. We we really did, and. You know we've got a really good home schedule again next year, and uh, so everything is trending in the right direction.
1: So that stadium actually does bounce. What is it
2: like down
1: on the field when when it starts to
2: bounce? I tell you, it is. The, everybody's on top of you. It's a different feel from a coach player standpoint than any place I've been to because they're so close to you. Yeah. But you do hear them bouncing. It'll it freaked me out a little bit the first year we're in the locker room and before the game the doors are shaking like whoa what's going on but now i'm used to it but it does bounce that's a true home field advantage that's right gus malzahn thank you so much thank you
1: Potentially big year for UCF. They bring a lot of guys back. Uh, we talked to RJ Harvey and, and Kobe Hudson. Uh, they're running back and receiver. They're the best returning guys at those positions. You're going to see those interviews here in the next days and weeks. And uh, RJ Harvey, specifically, 1,400 yards last year on the ground. I think he's going to have a very big year this year. So that that's an interesting situation because UCF going into the new Big 12, where everybody is pretty good. Like the, the, everybody's pretty close together in that league. I don't know that it's it's that easy to handicap because I think we're we're gonna probably look at Utah and Kansas State as the favorites, but Oklahoma State, UCF, you know, we'll see if TCU can make a bounce back. There, there's some really intriguing storylines in that league. Kansas could could be that team this year. We now focus on a team that has just left the big 12 entering the sec, the Texas Longhorns, Joe cook from inside Texas joins us. How are we doing, Joe doing great. Thanks for having me on Andy. My pleasure. My pleasure. And so we've been doing these deep dives into different teams. when, when FanDuel dropped all those win totals on us a couple of weeks ago, we thought, okay, let's look at these things. Let's figure out who's going over, who's going under. And Texas very select group. We just talked to our our friend Justin Hopkins from Scoop Duck because Oregon is one of those ten and a half win total teams. Oregon, Ohio State, Georgia, and the Texas Longhorns are the ten and a half win total teams. Those are the ones that, that people think will win the national championship. So how are the folks in in Austin dealing with that level of expectation?
3: They're as confident as ever. Uh, I think there are a lot of people who are probably in Austin. Um, even though they can't do it legally in Texas, they may be trying to figure out ways to to bet the over. <laughs> uh, the two probably toughest games are one is in Dallas at the Cotton Bowl against Oklahoma, your rivalry game that's always going to be difficult and important. And then the week after, you host Georgia at De- Daryl K. Royal Texas Memorial Stadium. That's your toughest game, and you get the Bulldogs at home at what's going to be a crazy weekend in Austin between – the maybe the number one team in the country coming in, Texas potentially being top five. And then you got the backdrop of the F1 race, too. That's going to be a <laughs> wild one in the uh, capital city. And uh, one that uh, if you haven't gotten a hotel yet, you may be a little out of luck. But uh, there's a lot of confidence, especially when you think about Jim Harbaugh going to the Chargers, Sharon Moore replacing him. That's a, you know, that, that's a brain, that's a football brain that's not in Ann Arbor anymore. And while I, really have a lot of respect for Sharon Moore, that national championship team, a lot of their best players are going to the draft. Similar holds to, true for Texas. You know They're losing A.D. Mitchell, Xavier Worthy, mm-hmm. uh, Jordan Whittington, Jonathan Brooks, the two defensive tackles. Uh, but they did really well in the portal at wide receiver, getting Isaiah Bond, Silas Bolden, Matthew Golden. Quinn Ewers is back. That's the big one. Um, and this team is seems like uh, after three straight top six recruiting classes, in a really good position to go into the SEC on the right foot.
1: Yeah, and that's the thing. I, We were talking about this the other day on the show, Joe. It feels like Texas is developing its players considerably better than it had been. You're going to see that in the draft this year. You're going to see it with you know Tavandre Sweat will be a great example of that. But but next year you're going to see Kelvin Banks be a you know highly draftable prospect. Uh, we'll see this year with Christian Jones on the offensive line what where, where he winds up, but. It does feel like they they've started to take those the the clay that they get and really create some players that are at elite level wise, and they're leaving. And it feels like that's the difference going into the SEC because you've got to deal with Georgia, who does that as well as anybody. You've got to deal with Alabama. Uh, you also still have to deal with Oklahoma and. It feels like that that sort of changes the math for Texas. That seems to be, to me, the difference between what we've seen so far in the Sarkeesian era and the the Tom Herman and Charlie Strong eras.
3: Yeah, I think the two of the guys, the offensive linemen that you named, are the best examples. Christian Jones, granted, he was a six year senior, uh, but this was someone who I think until his junior year of high school uh, never really played football. Uh, he's played a soccer. soccer player. Yeah, yeah. Big, he he talks about he's a big Man City fan. Uh, plays offense and defensive line for a a school in Houston. I think it was Cy Woods, and they're an option team, or they were really, you know, uh, emphasized running a lot more. So his first pass set was when he showed up at Texas. So that's the – and he was on that first Sugar Bowl team, uh, red-shirted, made his way all the way to a six-year player and was one of the best right tackles, I think, in the country. And then on the opposite side, you have Kelvin Banks, who comes in as a five-star Flip from Oregon, one of the top offensive tackles, I think, behind his linemate, D.J. Campbell, as far as rankings goes. And he's just been everything Texas is expected from a five-star offensive tackle since he showed up, started every game at left tackle. I think he was once an Oklahoma State commit, and they asked Mike Gundy about him one time, and he, in his classic Mike Gundy way, goes like, yeah, that guy's going to be here three years. So they've (laughs) been able to – uh, not only make use of the five stars I mean Xavier Worthy was one um, mm-hmm. I mean Quinn Ewers has shown development even over his two years at Texas uh, but they're also getting some of the the lower rated guys I mean Devondre Sweat another six-year guy he was well respected but he wasn't thought to be this he, he wasn't an Outland Trophy winner coming out of high school That's not what right. I think a lot of people thought was going to happen with his career and now he's you know the Outland Trophy unanimous All-American and working his way up draft boards after senior bowl and a great season.
1: So this schedule is interesting because one of the the quirks of it is that they're going to Michigan and that's a huge game. So much fun. You see the burn orange in the big house, but this was flip-flopped. This is, this is a series it's 24 and 27. This was originally going to be in Austin, but it had to get flip-flopped as part of the deal to get them out of the big 12 and into the sec this early and it does add a little little intrigue because you know the sec schedule they get georgia at home they you know their toughest game at home the florida comes to them kentucky comes to them they do have to go to texas a&m and that's that's its own story that we'll get to in a second but how how big is that at michigan game in terms of setting the tone for this season
3: I think it's big, and one of the the things that the Texas Athletic Department, I mean, Chris Del Conte even said this last week, even if the SEC goes to nine games, they're not going to shy away from playing other national brands. Now, what your definition definition of national brands is could be uh, up to interpretation. They have Ohio State going forward on the schedule, I think, in like the late 2020s. Then they got Arizona State, so a little bit different here and there, but uh, they've shown that they're not afraid to schedule big boys. I think when I was in school, uh, they started with Ole Miss, and then that became USC and Notre Dame. Um, it became, let's see, Alabama, of course. So I'm um, not going to mention one. BYU. That, 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 Those games didn't go that well. That, yeah, that'll that. but like you said, that'll definitely set the tone, and that'll say a lot about Texas if they were able to, in back-to-back years, go into this you know nationally prominent, uh, top-ranked team's house. And maybe get away with the win if they're able to do that then the, they're the, the, uh, the that 10 and a half is starting to look very accomplishable because you got you know the four out of conference games with Colorado State ULM and UTSA those are all those are those should be wins you know that's those are all in Austin UTSA mm-hmm. is not Frank Harris Harrison there anymore uh, and Colorado yep. State's kind of losing some of their uh top talent ulM still in first year so that's four and0. Uh, you, if if you beat Michigan, Mississippi State, the veer and shoots cause problems for Texas defense, but you get them at home. Oklahoma, it, it's always going to be crazy. And then Georgia. So that that Michigan game could really define what that Georgia game looks like. If it is like a game of, you know, one versus two, one versus three, top five matchup. Um, and if it has SEC title game implications, no matter what.
1: Yeah, it is. It is amazing how how this, like, you don't notice until you, it, it, that schedule comes out and you can really look at it. That's one thing I, I've talked to, you know, people in the Big Ten and the SEC about this year. Like, it feels real now. And it's been since, it was 2021. It was SEC Media Days 2021 when we found out that Texas and Oklahoma were going to the SEC. But now it feels super, because Georgia will be coming to Austin. I, I love that that's the same weekend as the F1 race. Like that is going to be the hardest. Ho- if, if you're trying to get one of those fancy downtown hotels, you well, are, you, you're not getting one now, but you, you better, you better have shelled out for that <laughs> quite a while back. But also, you know, let's talk about rivalries and, and old stuff. Like I'm not even going to go to AM yet. They got to go to Arkansas. Texas had to go to Arkansas a few years ago. It did not go well for Texas. That is a place where Texas is hated, absolutely hated. So like you want a hostile road environment, you're going to get that in Fayetteville.
3: You know, one of the cool things about uh, Reynolds Razorback Stadium, that's an open air press box, I think, and oh, I've yeah. been to a lot of those, whether in the Big 12 or uh, throughout all my travels that may have been the loudest road environment until I got to Bryant Denny that I've been to. And that's a, you know, I think 75,000 person stadium, but that 75,000 person stadium was just vitriolic. Like they had a, that place has a hate for Texas, unlike a lot of other schools, even Oklahoma and even Texas A&M. And they put it on the Longhorns that day. That was year one of SART game two of SART. Uh, They were switching quarterbacks uh, the team wasn't. The team just wasn't prepared, and and Arkansas was, and they were able to play to the crowd. Um, the fans had fun with the SEC bit, doing the the chants and, and things like that. But you you look back at that and think of, oh wow, soft Texas. You know, Sark's not getting it done. Can't prepare a team. And now look, we're, we're I just. We're about to talk about Sarkeesian's contract extension and exactly 10.3 uh, million a year. Yeah. yeah exactly. and, and now they, they are a playoff team. And now, you know, a couple years later, Sam Pittman is, you know, hanging on in Fayetteville because he has a good record since the 2020 season. So it, it, it the things can change in this sport very quickly, it can change slowly. And Sarkeesian's ability to build up the program. They're going to have to need it in, in Fayetteville because that, like you said, that place has a lot of hate for Texas. That's a type of environment that can, uh, you know, add a little bit of, of effort, add maybe a, a point or two on the spread. But um, it's it's part of what makes this SEC move great. Is not only are you uh, keeping your Oklahoma rivalry, one that was a non that was a non conference game for about eighty years, yeah, back when Texas was in the Southwest Conference and Oklahoma was in the Big Eight you're getting the Arkansas rivalry one that I think both at least Arkansas definitely wants to maintain Texas probably does too and then you of course you're getting the Texas A&M rivalry back after uh, 13 years of just internet chirping
1: let us talk about that because yes i just i always loved kind of refereeing those arguments on the internet where the Texas people are like we don't play it cuz of you and the A&M people are like we don't play it cuz of you and i'm like you're both just being complete wimps about this just play each other well now they're gonna play each other first time since 2011 they're going back to college station I I can't wait Joe what is the the vibe among the Texas fans about getting that rivalry back
3: there I I think people just forgot how much fun it really is I mean that is a game that it, you think about the Egg Bowl in Mississippi, and, and just how that whole state comes together for that game. And you think of other, you know, in-state rivalries where similar happens. Texas hasn't had that, and and, and that's not to you know diminish playing Texas Tech, playing Baylor, and playing TCU, of course, Southwest Conference rivals. But it's they aren't Texas A and M. That's been Texas Main in-state rival and they haven't been able to play. And I think once the buildup for that game starts, once we get to Thanksgiving week and everybody starts to realize that, that cousin that they, you know, well, (laughs) I'm going to watch Texas versus tech. Oh, I'm going to watch LSU and A&M. And then they have to kind of go their separate ways and not, and now they get to have to, they have to talk to each other about it. I think (laughs) that's when people are really going to start realizing uh, that it's, it's great that this rivalry is back. Um, Texas, of course, when they played in 2011, that there's a there's a famous clip. You can see Mike Sherman walking off the field, and then you can see true freshman who, who I didn't think didn't play, Johnny Manziel, wearing I think number 15, kind of running off the sideline after uh, Justin Tucker hits that kick. So hey, they they never played Johnny Manziel. They haven't been in the newly renovated Kyle Field. They've done some one offs in baseball, basketball. Yeah. You know a bunch of different sports, but they've never done football, and, and I think that that is going to be if, if Arkansas was vicious. That A and M crowd uh, on November 30th with you know 100 thousand plus, that place is going to be uh rocking and rolling in a play in a way that I'm not sure Kyle Field has seen maybe since those Johnny Manziel days.
1: I, I'm just imagining Thanksgiving dinners across the state of Texas, where you know you have mixed mixed families of, of Texas and A&M fans when they break into the liquor cabinet that Thursday like, like let's let's say they're watching the Cowboys and they break into the liquor cabinet and they start talking about that game on Saturday. Woo, it's gonna be so much fun And we, we have not I, I I've wanted to focus so much on the new stuff. I mean the Texas Oklahoma game last year was a classic. It didn't go the way Texas wanted to, but it was ex- everything you could dream of. In a Red River rivalry game, and I feel like people are just sort of shunting Oklahoma to the side. Like I would imagine, if you're Steve Sarkeesian and his staff, that there's no way they let these guys take Oklahoma less seriously because it seems like that was a a, a game that you know if that if like, hey, State had gone differently last year, that Oklahoma game would have ruined it for them.
3: Yeah, no doubt it was. There was a lot of turnovers. I think Quinn Ewers threw a couple interceptions. One was definitely his fault. One was kind of off a of deflection off of Jatavian Sanders. And then of course there was that goal line stand. You know that that Texas couldn't punch it into the end zone, and that ended up being the difference in the game. Uh, Sarks one and two against Oklahoma, and both of his losses are kind of heartbreakers off uh, big comebacks by by the Sooners. Uh, and, and you know for all the the praise that he's gotten in Austin, there are diehards who are like, you're still one and two versus Oklahoma. And that's something that needs to be fixed. 49-0 is a great one for that one to be, but uh, Texas expects to to play and and beat its rivals. And that's one that Sark hasn't topped yet. So I I think that it's going to be a very interesting matchup just because you have a a Texas uh, uh, program with quarterback coming back, um, uh, coaches coming back, head coaches coming back. You have a very talented Oklahoma program with Jackson Arnold stepping up, uh, new offensive coordinators, new defensive coordinator. But we know Brent Venables is still running that defensive operation. Um, and of course, the backdrop of the the SEC. You know, it's going to be funny to see at the Cotton Bowl. They always had the burnt orange Big Twelve logo and then the the crimson one. That's going to be an SEC logo now, uh, and it's gonna, that's going to be an SEC rivalry there at the Cotton Bowl instead of a you know. Big 12 or even Big 8 Southwest Conference
1: one. They have to sell deep fried SEC logos at the fair. I think that I think that would be a big hit. So, I can't let you leave Joe without asking the obligatory arch question because listen. I picked Washington in the Sugar Bowl in part because of Quinn Ewers because he's been inconsistent over the years. You just mentioned him in the Oklahoma game last year. So, he's also been very good at times. And he's entering year three as a starter at Texas, but he's also had situations where injuries have caused him to miss games in both of his seasons as a starter. So Arch Manning is there by all accounts. He is everything he was advertised to be as a recruit. How does that dynamic work between Quinn Ewers and Arch going into this season?
3: Steve Sarkeesian at the the, the second signing day conference was, was asked about this kind of arch's progress and, you know where where things fit, but he was pretty clear about saying no. Quinn's the starter, um, and and Quinn. If you I, I you can't always take a lot from social media, but if you go to Texas social media and look, they're featuring Quinn as if you know mm-hmm. he's the leader. This is his program. You know, face of the program type thing. Uh, but of course, Arch Manning's Arch Manning. He's going to draw a lot of attention. Uh, there's that famous the the famous picture from the Sugar Bowl media day that lacks oh, some yeah. context, but it still says a lot. Where you see Quinn looking in the background, and there's a huddle basically around Arch. Uh, but with Art, with Malik Murphy uh, transferring out, going to Duke, I think that does you know, make things a lot clearer. If there were three quarterbacks in this uh, position group again entering spring, I, that's a tough situation for Steve Sarkeesian to handle. It's tough for anybody to handle. Uh, it's a challenge. It's one that they love taking on, but it's still a challenge nonetheless. With Quinn and Arch, Quinn's going to be the starter. He's going to be the number one guy. Arch is going to be the the backup, obviously, and I think everybody uh, can can kind of see that. Like you mentioned, Quinn has missed games. One was because Dallas Turner landed on top of him. The other was because he had a you know a, a bad bump against U of H, and that's what brought Murphy in for a couple games during the season. So if you're Arch, not only are you kind of thinking, okay, my my redshirt sophomore year, I'm going to be able to to take control of this. You don't want to go in because of an injury, but the, the track record's a track record, and, and Quinn Ewers has missed five games in the past two seasons, so you know that there's probably an opportunity. I think it was really great for, for Sartre to be able to get uh, Arch some snaps, not only against Texas Tech where they, they ran real offense, uh, but also against Oklahoma State. Just getting him those snaps I think kind of shows everybody that there was it wasn't emphasis on redshirt year. Because I think if it's redshirt year, you're like, okay, four games. That's yeah. it. Doesn't have to play. You know, it, it was development year. It, it could have been a few. It, it, it came down to it. Maybe it was more than four. But the, the key was development year. A year for him to learn how to, you know, play college. Because for as talented as he is, Isidore Newman to Texas football, even in practice, is a bit of a step up. And that's, that's true for every five-star, number one overall prospect that you you come across. Uh, but he was able to, you know, not only get some great development in practice, but get some game opportunity. And looks like if, you know, if, if anything happens to Quinn or if the situation allows for it, thanks on a margin the the, the margin of the game, Arch is going to be able to play. And I think that's a big deal as far as also having his feet wet to a certain extent and not having to go into the SEC with a first year starting quarterback, even if he is a Manning. So for Sark, it's a good situation. Uh, all expectations are Quinn's going to have a good year, uh, head on to the 2025 NFL draft and the keys will be turned over to Arch Manning, but we're, we're still a year away from that. And, and until then, Quinn yours is the starting quarterback for the Longhorns.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting because now in this era, you rarely have a clearly delineated. This is the starter. This is the backup. You've actually had some snaps for your backup. So this is about as good as it's going to get in this era of college football uh, for, for Sark and, and, and for those guys. So, and, and I would imagine the Manning family probably a little more measured and reserved about all of this than, than the average, you know, QB family.
3: They, they know how this, this goes. Uh, they, they've experienced it a couple times. Uh, so they, they understand the process. And I think everybody looks at the way things with, with Peyton and Eli, It's like, Oh, they waited until their junior year. And or whatever year it was. And and while that's true, that's, that's 25 years ago. So even yeah, if Peyton you're... didn't wait. Pey- Peyton got thrown in pretty quick. So right. E- Eli had to wait until yeah. like his sophomore bowl game, right. Or something yep. like that. Yep. Um. So, I mean, still 25 years ago, different era. Uh. Even if it is the same family, you, you have to kind of live in the area you're in and not just looking at what uh, the family's done in the past, even though that's a factor. And the, the, the fact that, Steve Sarkeesian in Texas, even though it did—I don't want to say cost him Malik Murphy—but even though Malik Murphy exited the program, uh, someone who's still extremely well respected at Texas, and I think you can see from Sark not being able to keep him on board for the the playoff game that he was a little bit not distraught but upset about that, just at the whole way yeah. that the sport is. Uh, but Texas is in probably as good a quarterback situation as any other team in the country, and. Considering the way they've recruited, with Trey Owens becoming a four-star and KJ Lacey in the fold in the twenty twenty-five class, it looks like it's going to be that way uh, for the foreseeable future in Austin.
1: Yeah, the Murphy thing—you can't—you can't keep three starter-level quarterbacks. That's just greedy. So he'll he'll be at Duke, and and I bet he'll bet he'll play pretty well at Duke. So Joe, thank you so much. That was fun. I again, every time we do one of these things, I get more excited for this season because I I'm looking at the idea. Of Texas going into the big house, Georgia showing up at, at in Austin. I mean, it's, it's awesome. Joe, thank you so much.
3: Absolutely. Thank you.
1: That is Joe Cook from Inside Texas. And if you're a Texas fan and you're not already subscribed to Inside Texas, what are you even doing? The best Texas coverage is at Inside Texas. Part of the On3 network, of course. And, well, this has been fun. We've learned a lot today. I don't know that we've learned much about the the college football playoff, what is going to happen going forward, because that meeting has to take place. People have to argue a little bit. We'll be talking more about that tomorrow. Also, we are scheduled to get a visit from West Virginia coach, Neil Brown, sticking in the Big 12 a little bit. I want to talk to him about they had the sideline to on-the-field communication during the bowl game. And it sounds like that's going to get approved and the, the era of all those stupid signs and Pete holding up bedsheets and Connor Stallions might be over. So I want to talk to him about that and also just about how they turn things around at West Virginia and figure out how to retain guys on their roster because they're bringing back a pretty good team this year. Also, tomorrow is a Dear Andy show. So I've already got a few questions from you that are fantastic, but I know you're going to have more, especially with all these college football playoff changes and potential changes in the air. So hit me up, Andy underscore Staples, on Twitter and on Instagram, Andy on 3 at gmail.com if you would like to email a longer question or if you want to you know, turn the camera on yourself and be marginally internet famous as you ask your question on video. And thank you, Katie, in the chat. Great show. Loved hearing Gus on the show. And if you like the show, by all means, please give us a thumbs up please hit the like button. Please subscribe if you're not already subscribed to the On3Sports YouTube channel. Or if you're listening in podcast form, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. We do love doing this show every day. And you just let us know how you feel about it in the chat, in the comments. You got suggestions? We love those. You got questions? We love those too. So join us tomorrow. For a Dear Andy show, your questions will drive the show. We'll talk to you tomorrow.